It's July 29th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. In this hour, we'll hear first about the upcoming Okeanos Explorer Deep Sea Expedition to the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument with Christopher Kelly and Daniel Wagner. Then after a break, we'll hear from Angel Yanagihara and Mimi Pizoro about jellyfish research, commercializing university IP, and bringing a new cream that offers relief for painful stings to the market. And how do you get your hands on some sting no more? But first, the Okeanos Explorer is a premier research vessel for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. The Okeanos is preparing to embark on a deep-sea expedition to the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument and other areas in and around Hawaii. They're going to deploy an ROV, or remotely operated vehicle, and will stream much of the expedition live to the public. Our guests today are Christopher Kelly and Daniel Wagner from NOAA. Chris has for the last 15 years, been the program biologist for the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory, or HURL. Daniel, likewise, received his Ph.D. in biological oceanography from the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and is currently a research specialist for the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument. And we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Well, thank you very much for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, this uh, trip that you guys are going on, the uh, Okeanos is... Uh, uh, docked here. I think it's on a, a kind of a three-year mission, but your uh, voyage out to the National uh, Monument is is uh, happening this some coming Saturday. Maybe, Chris, tell us a little bit about what the mission is and, and what do you want to accomplish? Well, we've got three cruises this year. Uh, we've already had uh, one already, so we actually have three starting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, the first cruise is going to go up to Papanao Mokokea Marine National Monument. And we're going to take the 6,000-meter remotely operated vehicle with us. And we're going to dive on 20 locations that we picked out with the help of other scientists from around the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a number of objectives. And one of them is we're trying to look for very deep but very dense high-density high d- communities of uh, deep-sea corals and sponges as well as other animals. We feel that these are very, very important to document in the monument. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, I mean, when you talk about these uh, communities of deep-sea corals and other animals, um, what pops into my mind immediately are when people are studying, say, undersea volcanic vents and the heat that comes out of there and the unique forms of life. But we're not that sort of an environment that we're not seeing up in the monument. So what would constitute uh, a high-density community like that? Why is it interesting and different from what you might find, say, directly off Oahu somewhere? So, yeah, these are extremely interesting communities, uh, corals and sponges. So the communities they're targeting on this expedition, uh, they're kind of ecosystem engineers. And when I say that, I mean when you see these animals, you have a whole uh, suite of other animals associated with them. You have fishes swarming through their branches, other invertebrates. Uh, So when we do see these corals, we have a a dense aggregation of other animals. And so we're targeting these areas that are very high in biodiversity and and very interesting biologically. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris, you mentioned 6,000 meters uh, with the ROVs. Uh, Is this a measure that's uh, uh, unachievable by your previous, uh, you know, research lab called HURL? I mean, I think they were unable to go that deep, so this is something that extends the research capability. 
That's correct. So the submersibles that Hurl operated, the Pisces 4 and Pisces 5, had a 2,000-meter depth rating. Mm-hmm. This particular vehicle is not a manned vehicle like the Hurl submersibles. It's remotely operated, so we're on the ship. The vehicle is sent down, and it's broadcasting the video and other types of data via cable that comes up. But uh, this particular vehicle can reach 6,000 meters in depth, so three times the depth of the Hurl submersibles. So right now, the status up the monument is that we have some dives from uh, Hurl activities down to a depth of 2,000 meters, but that's it. That there is nothing known about what's below mm-hmm. 2,000 meters mm-hmm. in the monument. So, so do you think that the, the, the 2,000 meter limitation of Hurl is something that potentially has kind of obsoleted uh, that operation? Uh, I don't think so because there's plenty of areas that uh, you can uh, explore uh, down to 2,000 meters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just uh, um, it's just sort of the reality of budgets and funding and um, different emphasis in uh, NOAA, uh, more turning toward climate change. And also, um, Hurl, operating these submersibles, they could not broadcast live video to the rest of the world in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, the the products come after the dive because the submersibles are not connected. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so this there's this big uh, movement to uh, use telepresence, is, is what it's referred to, mm-hmm. to uh, engage basically the world in these exploration events. All right. And so, that, yep. yeah, I mean, Daniel, so uh, uh, Christopher mentioned that it's a remotely operated vehicle, so it's streaming video to the surface, but it, it sounds like that stream video doesn't stop at the Okeanos Explorer. You're going to have some way of letting people around the world watch what the ROV is seeing as it's seeing and doing this exploration? Yeah, so this is, we're extremely excited that the Okeanos Explorer is one of the few vessels in the NOAA fleet uh, that is dedicated to telepresence. So they stream all of the video in real time. And in fact, all the listeners, uh, anyone that has an internet connection can follow us uh, at oceanexplorer.noaa.gov. Um, there are several links there, including one to live feed, uh, so everyone can in real time see exactly the same things that we are seeing on the mm. ship. Now, the uh, you know, I got a chance to see some of the cameras on the uh, the what you call D two. Maybe you can get a little bit more detail as to what kinds of cameras are actually on the ROV. Yeah, so the the ROV is a it, it's about the size of a, a small vehicle, it's about nine thousand pounds. As Chris mentioned, can go down to six thousand meters, and it has nine cam- cameras that are high definition. Uh, the footage is absolutely gorgeous. You can see details uh, as clear as people were if they were in a, in in a submersible, seeing this with their own eyes. It is absolutely uh, phenomenal and spectacular footage. Mm-hmm. Now, there's uh, there's actually two. ROVs, and maybe you can explain a little bit about what the relationship are or is between these two, and they actually both go down at the same time, right? And they're they're sort of like companions, right? So um, this is sort of a design uh, for remotely operated vehicles. It's a it's a two part design, so they work together. It's it's sort of like a team, mm-hmm. if you will, where uh, the main ROV is actually attached to the second vehicle called Cirrus. And Cirrus is then attached to the ship. And the reason they use that design is that Cirrus will take the surface swell. So as the ship is going up and down in the waves up at the surface, Cirrus is going to be going up and down too because it's attached via the main cable to the ship. Mm -hmm. But the main ROV with the nine cameras and the big HD, it has a lateral tether to Cirrus. And that basically isolates it 
from surface swell. So the main ROV now can just go and sit down on a rock and zoom in on an animal and grab a specimen and do whatever it needs to do, and it doesn't have to worry about being yanked because mm. a wave went by. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talked about, you talked a little bit about some of these high-density uh, communities that you're going to be studying. I recall that uh, this mission is also going to be looking at something called black coral. Now, I have an idea of what that might be, but that could be based entirely on what commercial jewelry operators call black coral. So, Daniel, uh, what is it about black coral that's uh, being studied on this trip? So, black corals are one group of of corals. There's uh, different uh, groups. Uh, Black corals, uh, the name comes from corals that have a black skeleton, uh, and they are typically found in, in deep waters. Uh, but there's over 250 species of black corals worldwide. Uh, the interesting thing about them is that they're typically found in deeper depths. Um, so at these depths that we're going to be studying on the, uh, with the Okeanos Explorer, uh, black corals are some of the dominant uh, corals that mm-hmm. we'll see. So, you know, for the uh, the 20 sites that were selected along the Papahanaumokuakea National Monument, uh, what was it about those 20 that got them to be selected or put on this list? Well, there's um, a lot of the sites are what they call rift zone ridges, but basically they're a ridge, and it's um, sort of a ridge extending uh, in one direction from the main volcanic platform mm-hmm. under the bank or under the seamount. Mm-hmm. And these ridges are of interest to us because we think they could be sites where uh, we can find very large-scale high-density communities. And the reason for this, and it's sort of a working hypothesis, is a ridge actually presents topographically consistent uh, habitat, if, if you know what I'm saying. It's extending in one direction. And for these corals and sponges, they like to filter feed. Mm. Current direction is a big deal for them. And if how they're oriented to the current uh, will determine how successful they are. So if you have the right ridge and the right orientation, then this could hap- perhaps cause the development of a very dense community. So we're going to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of curious, uh, was it something about this particular mission that both of you qualified for or actually put in the proposal for? Uh, what, I guess maybe what, what is it that, that uh, has gotten you to be the, 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 the lead scientist on this expedition? <laughs> luck? Oh, also, just no, luck? Um, <laughs> Noah no. Lottery. Oh, I see. Um, I see. Well, I, I've been uh, the program biologist for 15 years for Hurl, and I specialized in deep-sea animals. And on, on the Hurl website, we have a, an animal guide that shows every single animal that Hurl has been able to uh, document. Uh, there's over 1,500 photos on there. Mm-hmm. And um, I've worked quite a lot with taxonomists in an effort to identify what these animals are. So I'm very familiar with the fauna out in this region, and I think that played a major role in why they decided to ask me. Mm-hmm. To and do Daniel, this. how are you so lucky? So I am the program biologist for the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with this first expedition targeting this uh, very special place, I was asked to join Chris. So on the uh, subsequent expeditions, will you both also be uh, assigned, I guess, to, to, this, uh, to those upcoming uh, voyages? Well, I'm going to go out on the second short one, and this will be around the main Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to be going with Dr. Frank Parrish uh, with NOAA Fisheries. And uh, this is a sort of contract work, so we're actually going to help support some of the research he's doing and pick up some instruments and deploy some other things on precious coral sites. Mm-hmm. And then um, on the third ROV cruise to Johnston Atoll, then I will not. I'll be actually participating via one of these exploration control centers on land, but I'll be participating nevertheless. Mm-hmm. 
Now there, you'll, have, you'll have HD video to be watching while that expedition is going on. That's right. <laughs> so actually, you know, it, there's really not that much of a difference between being on the ship and being in these exploration control centers and actually being at your home watching. You are seeing the live feed in real time. No matter where you are, you are seeing what everybody else is seeing. These exploration control centers, where, where are they located? So we have one at the Inui Regional Center at Fort Island, mm -hmm. uh, the NOAA main offices, and one at the University of Hawaii. Uh, and then there's actually several others throughout the country, uh, but we have two here in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're looking at these uh, biological communities, these uh, marine bio uh, biology uh, as a study, I understand, though, that there's also a mapping component to this, that you're looking at the geography of it. Um, Christopher mentioned the ridges and how they might form in certain ways and create a uniform environment for reefs. What are some of the other things that you're looking for in terms of geological features uh, underwater? So just in, in some of the places, actually, we have a couple sites that we haven't mapped yet completely, but where we want to do a dive. Uh, so we're we actually going to be mapping uh, the area. Um, and as Chris mentioned, we're looking at places where the bottom, the topography of the seafloor uh, would indicate that you have high current flows. Um, and so we'll be mapping those first and then uh, picking the target uh, in the place where we think we have the best flow conditions for, for corals and, and sponges. Um, but uh, as Chris mentioned, we also had a first uh, cruise uh, just return uh, this past week, which went to Johnson Atoll, and that did not do any uh, dives with remotely operated vehicles. That just uh, mapped uh, the area around Johnson Atoll and the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. Um, with the intent of picking sites uh, that in uh, a month from now, there'll be another cruise going down there uh, where they'll actually be deploying their remotely operated vehicle on these features that they're mapped. So this, uh, this uh, Johnson Atoll mapping project, uh, I understand President Obama has, has sort of extended the, the boundaries around that monument. I mean, maybe you could give, you, give me a little background on, on how it's now being sort of mapped out or the, the boundaries around it. Um, so, yeah, uh, President Obama expanded the boundaries just uh, last year, making it now the largest uh, marine protected area in the United States and, and in the Pacific. Um, but we still know very, very little about it. Um, in fact, uh, no dives have been done around Johnson Atoll anywhere deeper than uh, uh, 366 meters. And a large portion of this had not been uh, mapped before. Uh, so getting this kind of baseline uh, information, the, the maps and then video of what's down there, is really uh, kind of the baseline information that we need uh, to protect and manage these areas. Mm -hmm. So when you're playing with Google Earth and you're spinning it around, and you can remove the ocean and you see all these little spikes and ridges and bumps in the ocean around Hawaii or in the Marine National Monument, is that just very rough satellite uh, estimations? Is that imagination? I mean, yeah. What are we looking at there? Well, most of what you're seeing in Google Earth uh, on the seafloor is from uh, what they call satellite altimetry bathymetry, and it's basically an estimation of the topography on the seafloor based on water height, sea surface water height. So it is going to be very coarse. It's going to be very fuzzy. You can see bumps. It's pretty good at predicting uh, where uh, features are, like seamounts and things like that, but you really can't get a look at them because mm. they're just fuzzy bumps. And if we're trying to plan a dive and to go to a specific type of topography, it's impossible to use that type of data. Mm -hmm. So when we map with these sonar systems, much, much higher resolution, we can see all types of things uh, come out in the imagery. 
Now, are there some um, some mineral deposits in this area that you might be mapping, and and what could we perhaps potentially uh, look forward to? I guess uh, in terms of resources that might come out of the ocean in this area. Right. So the interesting thing about the Central Pacific, where Hawaii is located, as well as the the Pacific extending all the way to the Marianas the Mariana Trench is that we're in an area called the prime crust zone or has been identified as the prime crust zone, which means that we have these deposits on hard substrate on the seafloor that that have a lot of metal and cobalt and manganese, and they're called manganese crusts. Mm-hmm. And our crusts out in this area of the world are the richest on the planet, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why it's called the prime crust zone. Nobody's mining them now, but uh, they're going to look at this very seriously in the future, and we have an opportunity on this cruise to actually get a head start in examining these communities, which are very poorly understood. Right, and I know that that's certainly a resource that uh, many nations are interested in potentially tapping, but maybe my, my last question would be going the other way. I mean, certainly we've been seeing a lot in the news about marine debris, about pollution, about climate change and its effect on reefs, um, uh, the missions that are coming here, whether it's Solar or Explorer or uh, the the the. the the yacht, the trimaran that came from California, they're all about raising awareness of these kinds of issues. Is that also part of the mission of the Okeanos Explorer, or this particular trip to look at human impacts on someplace like the Marine Monument? Uh, so, yeah, one interesting thing about these areas that we're targeting uh, in both the monuments, both the Papahanaumokuaka and the Pacific Remote um, Islands Memory National Monument is that they contain some of the most pristine ecosystems on the planet. So they are far removed from people. Uh, people don't live there. There's no fisheries. There's very little um, pollution that gets to these places because they're so, so remote. And so by looking at these places, we can get an idea of what an ecosystem should look like in the absence of humans. Um, and that really is important because when people go out to the beach uh, and look at the reefs uh, off Waikiki, they think that those are normal, uh, but they're not. They have been heavily degraded by humans. And to, by looking at these pristine ecosystems, we can quantify some of the impacts in more populated areas. You know, you talk about the uh, this voyage being the establishment of a baseline. So when you have achieved that, I mean, is this information that you will be making available to not only the well the scientific community but also to the public so the way the uh, office of ocean exploration and research works they get their data out probably faster than any other research organization out there that is a very high priority to them so the mapping data that just came from johnson they had it on an ftp site mm. uh, virtually the next day or mm. the third day and they have what's called an oceanus atlas which you can actually look at the data on a display and it's updated every 15 minutes so absolutely it's it's uh it's an absolute mission for this project and for this office to get this data out and as widely distributed as possible to anyone who'd like it. Great. Well, David, so if somebody wants to follow, when does the mission start? Saturday, I believe? Uh, we sail this Friday, July 31st mm. at 6 in the morning. All mm-hmm. right. Well, if somebody wanted to watch that gorgeous HD feed, well, are, can they watch it now? I mean, where would they go to see what the Okeanos Explorer is seeing? Uh, so the link is oceanexplore.noaa.gov, and they can see the ship right now being docked at Pearl Harbor, and they can see us depart on Friday morning. Fantastic. And if you can't remember that, just Google Okeanos Explorer, and it'll take you right to the website. Also. Well, we'll definitely be putting that up on our show notes uh, later on this evening. So thanks, Chris and Daniel, for joining us, and the best of luck on your expedition. 
Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Aloha. And of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Angel Yanagihara and Mimi Pizuto and talk about box jellyfish. How has UH research into jellyfish and other venomous stings supported the development of a new cream that can bring relief, first for military divers and now for the general public? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the Americans. That number is 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Change happens, yes, but sometimes it comes on a train going 200 miles an hour. There's a lot of changes that are going to happen to Acton, and and people are already getting concerned if they're close to retirement age and thinking they should move on now while they can. I'm Kai Rizdal, high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco via Acton, California. That's next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. On the next On Being, neuroscientist and epigeneticist Rachel Yehuda. You cannot run from your past, but maybe you would run farther if you carried your past with you as long as you can control it. The science of how trauma and resilience cross generations. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Angel Yanagihara and Mimi Pizuto. And uh, Angel is an assistant researcher at the Pacific Biosciences Research Center and director of the Pacific I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Nideria. Nideria Research Lab. <laughs> Mimi, meanwhile, teaches in both the Departments of Pharmaceutical Sciences and Pharmacy Practice and is pharmacist in charge at the Student Medical Services at the great University of Hawaii at Hilo. And what have we learned from the studies of box jellies and their monthly visits? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Welcome, Angel and Mimi, to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for the invitation. So, Thank you. Hi, Bert. Hi, Hi Mimi. Now, Angel, um, we, we've had you on before, and, and maybe we'll kindly ask you to recap all that has happened <laughs> since we last had you on. I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm delighted for the invitation back. The last time we met, I think we discussed the biochemistry of the venom and my efforts to sort of deconstruct that mm-hmm. and determine what the ingredient list was and why these particular compounds do what they do. Um, basically, what I have been able to do is to identify the fastest acting agent and then going back to what we call brute force biochemistry, just looking for inhibitors. So on the bench, doing experiment after experiment with all different types of classes of compounds. And fortunately, we've come up with a a number of of great inhibitors for different aspects of the venom. I had been contacted by the Department of Defense, the United States Special Operation Command, because combat divers have been presenting with what's called Irukandji syndrome. So these fellows are dropping out of helicopters at night into tropical waters, and they're not wearing wetsuits. They're wearing regular combat fatigue 
eggs, and oh. they had uh, had problems with box jellyfish actually getting into their shirts, etc., and stinging them. Wow! And these folks are presenting to their dive medical officer, uh, basically at death's door. So it got the attention of the Department of Defense, and they reached out and. I basically provided to their dive medical officers all my biochemical data, and I was tasked with bringing this to some translational outcome, something mm-hmm. that could help them in their clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. Um, the other part of the contract, which was very intriguing to me as a basic researcher, a PI and UH Manoa, was the requirement for a commercialization plan. And that's not something that you, UH uh, professors get asked to do a lot of times. You know, our research is, is for research's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but a commercialization plan to have teeth would be able, would actually have to bring some product to market. So I, I proposed, I spoke with people in the business school, et cetera, and I came up with a plan and I've actually implemented that. So here today to kind of show you uh, what that process has resulted in. Mm-hmm. We're definitely curious about that. I mean, uh, research that has an application, particularly for the military, is already interesting, but that as a result of being engaged in that way that you had to kind of come up with this marketing plan to to make it commercially viable. When we last had you on, we talked a little bit about, and this is actually a running theme on our show, the the commercialization of any research that happens at UH. How do you get it from the lab to a shelf on a store? Um, but I, I, I did want to uh, explore a little bit what you had said about what the divers experienced. You worked with Diana Nyad, a long-distance swimmer who made a historic crossing, and although she's not jumping out of a helicopter, she too faced life-threatening conditions. And if I understand correctly, you were di- diving right alongside her to monitor this jellyfish activity, correct? Well, exactly. Um, Interestingly enough, about the same time that I heard from the dive medical officers at the SOCOM, I had an email out of the blue from this person, uh, Diana Nyatt. I did a quick Google, and I saw she was this amazing swimmer. I watched a TED Talk, and I was absolutely floored. Mm -hmm. I I mean, this person had written me maybe 15 questions, so I, I wrote extremely detailed answers to each of her questions because I thought, you know, she had basically faced a life-threatening sting in the Florida Straits and and it sounded like they had done everything possible wrong. So I went into great detail and then she wrote back and CC'd 20 different people in 18-point font, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) So she said she had written to people all over the world, and no one had really responded to her, and certainly nothing to the extent that I had. And she asked me if I could help their team develop something for her. And I told her it wasn't possible. And then she said, well, no, I need something, you know, to prevent the stings. And I said, no, that's not possible. And she said, no, I need something to prevent the stings. And I said, okay, well, let me look into that. (laughs) Um, And that actually led me to this lanolin-based ocean, open ocean swimming um, treatment, which I have tested on myself, put it on myself and then swum an hour and then put a jellyfish and I have a video Uh, of it. So, I mean, I, I, I... Firstly, worked on this at the lab bench, but to, you know, truth test it and ground truth it myself, I I did uh, personally test that. I love that. (laughs) So what I ended up doing, though, um, they then insisted that I be part of the expedition. And I said, well, I can't possibly, you know, go to Havana and and go across the floor. Oh, no, we need you to. And again, uh, it was was an offer you couldn't refuse. And so I ended up being a diver at night from dusk to dawn each night of the crossing, helping to assess the danger that we were in and providing different levels of protection to her uh, based upon what 
what what the threat was. So um, I spent a lot of time in the water uh, going across with mm-hmm. her. Now, now, Mimi, we've uh, we've we've got you on the line, and you've been patiently waiting. And I, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of share with us what is your role in this partnership of ours uh, with uh, with Angel. Well, our role isn't nearly as exciting as Angel, <laughs> but what we do is Angel called the College of Pharmacy looking for some help in perfecting the formula that she had uh, come up with. Mm-hmm. So uh, our role at the school is to look at those formulas and make a better base, something more suitable to what uh, is needed for the end user. Uh, but what's really interesting at the College of Pharmacy is we have lots of pharmacy students with licenses who just love to get their hands dirty and make exciting formulas that may go to market. So this became um, a, a bit of a challenge for some of my students. Uh, it was very exciting for them because now we had to really think out of the box, not just a prescription for one person, but making a large batch quantity that would actually go out to many people uh, on the market. So, um, you know, we had to look at labels and would the ingredients work together? Were they stable? Mm. Uh, what, what good base could we use? Was it pharmaceutically elegant? Um, and how would this end package work for the user? Could the user open a jar or would they need some kind of special package that's easier to manipulate in the water? So we had all kinds of challenges to look at and worked with Angel to solve what she was looking for. Now, Mimi, I, I love specifically that uh, Dr. Nagihara Angel was able to find a local partner for this, and maybe you have a good understanding of this. If somebody was developing uh, cream and or, or anything that a, pharma, a pharmacy student would be working with, if they didn't have the great fortune to discover eager students and a college of pharmacy <laughs> here in the islands, I mean, how do other people get packaging and mix things and make them available like that? Well, it depends on... Um who they are. So usually a doctor will go to a compounding pharmacy who specializes in making these specialized creams. But if it's uh, someone who's looking to do something on a larger scale, they may go to a cosmetic um, manufacturing facility Mm. and try and work with the facility. But when you work with a compounding pharmacy, you really have the advantage of one pharmacist um, working very closely with you to get exactly what you want. So as a, uh, is this something that uh, at UH Hilo uh, you've developed a program that is, is, is recognized? I mean, I'm, 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 I don't mean that in a way that you know, it's not recognized, but is this something that you normally would get a, a researcher like Angel calling up and say, hey, you know, can we develop something that is for commercial, has commercial potential? Uh, and is that something that you've, you know, from a, from a college of pharmacy, you've developed a specialized sort of curriculum for that? Yes, we do. So the first-year pharmacy students actually have a course in compounding uh, pharmacy, and they learn how to make all kinds of custom dosage forms. Mm-hmm, it's really mm-hmm. part of what pharmacists have done for thousands of years. Uh, I also teach an advanced compounding course where we make cosmetics, um, and we give them out at health fairs and, uh, you know, so well, that's, that's great, really exciting for the students. But yes, we've had several um, doctors, um, uh, other um, departments at Manila come to us uh, for our pharmaceutical expertise, 
to develop something for them, specifically for a study they might be doing. Um, we developed a vitamin D cream for a doctor that she uses. So, yes, we have a lot of expertise there in this area. Oh, that's great to know. Now, Angel, I want to talk a little bit more about that process, though, because I know when we last had you on the show, um, there's still, and I would say even then and today, are challenges in bringing a university uh, originated technology to what would be a commercial ready product. And um, I wasn't sure how your project was going until I heard about the launch of Stig No More, but there's that gap that I really wanted to hear how you leapt across it. Um, was that through the university's commercialization program? Was that you grabbing a, the bull by the horns and just pushing it through? How did that happen? <clears throat> Probably all of the above. <laughs> um, I, I've had it described as making sausage. You, you really yes. don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the backstory <laughs> is quite messy, and there's plenty of heartbreak and uh, consternation and frustration. Um, that said, I think that UH is a natural IP gold mine, and that most professors, researchers there are going to be making discoveries that potentially have uh, economic uh, value to them. Bringing those to market, though, is uh, in each case sort of an idiosyncratic kind of navigational path that can be extremely complicated. Um, I think that the OTED office at UH does a fantastic job. They're tasked with you know, an enormous burden with a small budget. So that's, that's just, um, you know, it's a difficult thing. And I, I've had, um, I've, I've seen described the entrepreneurial mindset is, is basically not why you can't do it is Mm. how I'm going to get it done. So I I think that tenacity has to be part of the calculus, but um, the bigger picture, I think Hawaii has a a dynamic um, environment in which, you know, we are very remote and we have a lot of remarkable assets here and things which just aren't um, typical for for a lot of universities. So I think that there's a lot of will here and a lot of creativity and a real good uh, positive attitude, but that that really doesn't help sometimes with, right. with all the challenges that exist. You know, when we had you on the show, and this is probably a good, probably better part of a year or so, more maybe, uh, OTED was around, but OTED has been, you know, sort of in place to do tech transfer. Uh, but since then, there have been other programs like uh, Accelerate UH, some of these accelerator programs, were you ever thinking about perhaps combining, you know, with the work that you were doing with the Mimi and look at maybe going through an accelerator program that helps to uh, sort of kickstart this startup that you've uh, created? Well, I, I think the door is still open for that. Um, frankly, my technology fell out of uh, favor, if you will, in in certain respects. Um, And I had to pick up uh, the pieces and put it back together. So uh, UH quit claim on a number of these technologies, and I funded the patent myself um, because I I knew the value of it. I've seen the data. Um, So in in some respects, um, there's been a great partnership with UH. In other respects, there have been, you know, bumps in the road. Uh, But I would say all in all, I don't want to fault OTA 
ahead on that because they are actually making judicial um, decisions based upon a limited budget. They don't want to hold IP from professors if they can't fund the patents right. mm-hmm. and they can't fund all the patents. So if they drop if they quit claim on something, then it's up to the investigator to pick it up or to find partners who can pick it up. Um, and in my case, I, I did that. Um, but I think that, like I say, it's each case is its own creation, and there's not it's it's a sausage making sure. kind of situation. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. There's not like a a straight path that would work in every case. And so I I think that um, the the bigger context, the environment, a positive environment, uh, is is probably the the ho- the best we can hope for. Well, here. I think tenacity is certainly something that I'm picking up, and I like that actually that they can make that call and they say, okay, we can't do anything with this. It's a available to you, it's still not a simple process for you to pick it up and to run with it. And you had mentioned uh, getting perhaps this opportunity with the Department of Defense and having to come up with a commercialization plan. And you've actually answered a question in a sense, because I'm like, where does it go from here? You're, you have the research hat, but now you have also the business hat. So, uh, and also for Mimi, perhaps after you answer, this is now something that's your baby. I mean, so how are, how did you come to the point where you're like, well, now this is a business. You had to uh, funded the patent and start a business. Um, how was that process for you as someone coming from the research side to become an entrepreneur that way? Well, I had actually sat in the back seat of the patent process multiple times. Mm. I have full U.S. granted patents already that the University of Hawaii paid all the costs for. So I've been uh, one of, you know, writing the patent application drafts and, you know, uh, another embodiment is this and another learning the language. Mm -hmm. So I had been through that a number of times. Um, So this time uh, funding the patent attorney myself, um, it wasn't very different because I had been through the process. But I think, you know, towards the bigger picture of of now you have this LLC identity. Well, the University of Hawaii does allow for faculty to have 20% of their 40-hour week uh, devoted to things that are not necessarily within their faculty duties. So it, that's a, it's a doable two-hat um, kind of environment. But frankly, I would like to kind of pass this baton on, mm. um, you know, creating a business and, and commercializing a product and bringing something to market. That's its own dynamic. Um, I'm not so sure that I want to you know, be the small business owner mm-hmm. in perpetuity. I mean, it may work that it goes that way, but I think the market application of this is sufficient that, you know, perhaps a a, a better partner will come up and, and I can kind of pass that baton on. But I, that said, I did not want to let this patent, this IP lapse. Right. And right. if I hadn't picked it up um, and I went to publish the data, it's it would be enabling information and it no longer could be covered by patent protection. And University of Hawaii um, would have lost out on on that particular, I, I think, claim that it, it, it is a result ultimately of of UH research. So I think it was a it was a good call. But yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I can't mm-hmm. really see down the road very far right now to tell you I'm going to do this forever. But mm-hmm. um, I, I felt uh, that that this should not be let go, and that there was enough public good here to be served that that I should take uh, a time to work on it. And from your point of view, Mimi, I mean, I can see the advantage of having students and eager participants and lab workers and uh, 
helping their education as well. But there's also the part where if you're talking about a commercial product, not just for the military uh, market, but for anybody who gets stung by uh, jellyfish, uh, is there a path? Is there an LLC for it on your side for the strictly business operations of being a, a product mixer and, and, and uh, delivery organization? Um, as far as I know, we're allowed to pay for use of lab for a commercial enterprise mm-hmm. and what, as well as reimburse for labor time and product costs. So at this point, that's the only thing we would do if this continues to grow. Because right now we're really working under a grant um, and it's all academic, but when this truly gets commercialized, then the business structure from what we're doing would have to change. Uh, we might even have to uh, hire someone specifically to work on it. I see. Well, you know, so I I, I, I want to explore this area because I think it's interesting that you are under contract with the Department of Defense to actually commercialize uh, this. So we'll, we'll talk about that some more. We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Angel Yanagihara and Mimi Pizzotto about box jellyfish and possible treatments. That's Remedies. Right. Remedies. Relief. Relief. The pro- It's called Sting No More, and I certainly want to hear more about what it can do for me as a ocean lover. And of course, we'd love to hear from you as well if you have a question. You can call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, you can call 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. This is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin Big Band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Patrice Vecchioni, author of Step Into Nature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about nurturing imagination and spirit in everyday life. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Dr. Angel Yanagihara and Mimi Pizzuto about box jellies, stings, and sting no more. And, of course, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, we were talking about the, you know, the, the sort of the process of commercialization. And what I'm, I'm interested in is, and Angel, I, I know you just said that uh, whether or not you will be the one to take this to that commercial level, there's a DOD contract, and, and I'm trying to understand what is the obligation under that DOD contract and to what extent do you have to perhaps deliver something that's commercial? Is it when they, you know, if they want a million orders of this, is that something that you have to fulfill? Well, actually, I, I should clarify, we are already commercial. 
So part of the commercialization plan required that I create a website that is open to the public that does conduct commercial sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are already doing that. Um, the reason for the, that requirement, according to the off my um, contracting officer at, at the SOCOM, is so that military units around the world can use this as an independent procurement, rapid procurement a- aspect or, or a portal. So that does exist, and it does serve the public good as well because it can be purchased by the, the general public. Um, because this has been supported by a DOD grant um, or contract, and that does go to support also UH Hilo costs, um, we're com- currently in a commercial space with contracted uh, ability to manufacture. Oh, I see. I see. So once this contract concludes, though, uh, Mimi and I, uh, Mimi particularly, has been exploring uh, contract manufacturers that we could work with to produce the same um, um, products now that are available to the general public and to the military uh, at a at a larger uh, scale level. So right now we are a commercial entity, but we're sort of a, a small scale commercial entity. And I've only wanted the business to grow organically right. and specifically mm-hmm. Hawaii-based people. Um, I haven't sought to you know uh, exploit this as they say in a broad context because um, our our manufacturing capacity is is limited currently, but. But mm-hmm. um, we're looking for a quantum growth, sure. uh, and that's a transition that will be coming. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, one of my favorite TV commercials is a guy who launches the website, and then there's a little odometer that says how many orders they come in, and it starts going up, and he gets really excited, really excited, and then suddenly it goes to a million, and he looks terrified. <laughs> so I don't think we necessarily want that. Right. Absolutely. Now, we're talking to uh, Angel Yanagihara uh, at the UH uh, doing research on jellyfish, and uh, Mimi Pizzotto from um, UH Hilo School of Pharmacy. And of course, if you have a question or comment, uh, feel free to give us a call. Number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Greg from Kailua to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, the uh, Well, the, the questions that come in I have are these. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, there, there are some Three young swimmers who are going to be swimming from uh, Molokai to Oahu uh, this Friday night and uh, Saturday morning at the, about a 16-hour swim. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, one of the swimmers uh, was just accepted to the UH uh, School of Pharmacy and will be starting in the fall. Uh, oh. But uh, uh, the, uh, the question is, how can these three young swimmers, uh, you know, in their 20s, uh, get this product and get it in time for uh, their uh, Molokai to Oahu swim this Friday night. Special delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Angel, so how what? Do you have any, uh, uh, what's your distribution? Like, how can you get this out to Molokai? Um, So I would... We're we're on Oahu now. uh, They'll be flying to uh, Molokai on Friday to to start the swim on Friday evening. So it's Instead of like trying to get it on Thursday here on Oahu. Oh, uh, oh. Hmm. that's possible. <laughs> I, I think uh, if you can give your contact information to someone at the station, I'll follow up after our um, interview here. And yeah, um, uh, Greg, if you want to email us your contact info, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And actually, after the call, our engineer might be able to collect that for you. But if okay. not for a 
epic sounding swim um is there a place where someone perhaps in less of a hurry could also because you said it's already it's launched where where do they go so it's available at hanama bay gifts shop um but what's available there is the greaseless formula that the the mil spec formula the high concentration formula for after a sting the um my website has our website has the lanolin based formulation on it but that's made to order mm. so that we don't have a good um we don't have Inventory. a shelf life you don't have that. a stock uh, uh, but this needs to be made up uh, exactly to order so um but i actually have recently we have recently made up a few um so there there could be enough for the swimmers that he's speaking about so okay, good. So I guess maybe uh, if you know if you guys hook up, then uh, you can fulfill his order. But that's at stingnomore.com? Right. Correct. Right. So well, let me talk a little bit more, uh, maybe with Mimi about the packaging because uh, Angel, you have some here. Uh, the lanolin is in a jar, and then I guess the mil spec one is in. It looks like a like a, maybe a mayonnaise packet you would get at Wendy's or something. But tartar, uh, tartar sauce. Tartar sauce. Let's say a foil pack. A foil pack. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Don't eat it. Not for human consumption. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, Mimi, you talked about working on the packaging. Is there anything special, for example, about the foil pack that you had to think about to select that that packaging for this product? It's funny that you asked that because, yes, indeed, um, as pharmacists, we really never put anything in a foil pack. But <laughs> right. it was, a, you know, as a parent to Angel that needed to have something very easy to open that was small and uh, manageable for these divers. And a jar is just not that thing. So we thought and thought and thought, and we looked on the web, and we found a couple different examples of foil packs, and we thought that maybe this would be our best bet. So uh, I ordered a bunch in, and they came, and we kind of looked at each other and said, okay, now what? And we figured out how to fill them with a syringe and actually iron them shut with an iron. Wow. Um, and it, it, it worked out quite nicely. They were very happy with these foil packets that we ended up with. But uh, just this week, I was at a very large manufacturer who uh, works with Procter & Gamble and Starbucks and, you know, big-scale enterprise, and I showed them, you know, what we had done and asked them, if maybe they could do something like this. And they brought out all kinds of really cool packets and colors and uh, different perforations um, that they could do on a much bigger scale, which is way out there. Mm. So, yeah, it really did force us to think outside the box as pharmacists. Um, no. But we're happy with what we came up with. <laughs> right. Now, Mimi, uh, you know, the uh, this uh, formula can... I guess be used for fire ants and box jellyfish and Portuguese man of war. I mean, what is it about their stings that are common that you could basically handle with you know this this formulation? Um, Angel is probably okay. <laughs> We're all looking at Angel. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I do want to throw the question back to Mimi because she had first-hand experience on the Big Island with the small fire ant. Mm-hmm. Do you want to mention that, Mimi? Yeah. Um, some, several of the people I work with, I, I gave them samples to just play around with, and uh, one woman's dog had gotten bit by fire ants in a bush, and she was you know, pretty sure it was fire ants. Um, and so she put the formulation on the dog's nose because we knew that it, it might be effective against ant bites as well. 
and she said it immediately, the dog immediately stopped scratching his nose and, um, you know, being irritated by it. Uh, and then her son also got bit by a centipede. Oh. <laughs> she put it on, and it worked against that. So uh, that's something angels maybe will look at down the line. But we've got some anecdotal things going on uh, with ants and other little bugs that are very interesting. So, yeah, so Angel, can you, can you sort of describe what is going on with the sting and what you are putting on it to relieve that, you know, that sting? Well, you always ask me a pointed question that I can't answer at the time that I have to tell you, <laughs> wait for the paper. That's, oh, <laughs> okay. I, I, like, you know the answer. Yes. You so, know the answer, but so, you can't. Okay. Right. So I, I, when I started this work, I was working with box jellyfish venom, mm-hmm. um, our local species. Then I broadened it and got other uh, Chironex and other box jellies. But then we went broader to Physalia, et cetera. And then I became curious about other insects. So I ordered um, from NIH core repository fire ant venom, Solenopsis. And I did um, basic uh, matrix experiments there. It turns out that a lot of these venoms... Um, contain um, common elements and common uh, modalities of of pathogenesis, as they say, so the way they work. Mm -hmm. Um, So this um, approach that I've developed is a very, very primitive, fundamental kind of core um, inhibitor. Um, And it's remarkable to me, even with regard to bacterial toxins. So potentially this, I'm writing a grant proposal to investigate MRSA, for instance. So bacterial toxins are produce bacteria and pathogenic bacteria produce a whole laundry list of toxins, but they produce something in common called pore-forming proteins, these porins. Anthrax has one, anthrolysin O, streptolysin O. So it's very interesting that uh, a lot of these primitive organisms use a similar tool set kind of approaches to wreaking havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we feel pain, um, there are some common ways in which that is caused. Mm-hmm. So this uh, discovery, which is is not that advanced as far as a, a advanced pharmaceutical, it, it's actually under safe uh, FDA monographs that can be used over the counter. Mm. It is a very elegant and interesting, um, fundamental kind of interruption of a common uh, stratagem that a lot of these pathogenic organisms use. Mm-hmm. So I can say that without being mm-hmm. enabling, no. but then I can give you more detail. <laughs> no, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. Yeah, yeah. So. Is this something that obviously you've uncovered? Has anybody else discovered this as well? Well, I will bring you an interesting story. When I started this work, um, I, I'm a biochemist. I like to look at structures. That's what mm-hmm. I enjoy. When we first solved the structure of these pore-forming proteins, I went back into the data. NIH's beautiful three-dimensional structure search webs, and I looked at all these things, and that one thing to led to another, and I saw the anthrolysin O. And so then I went to the old literature before the advent of antibiotics to see how some of these pathogens were managed. And in the... Uh, late 1800s, even 1700s, a lot of these things were managed with interesting mineral salts. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of them are extremely toxic Mm. and not nothing you'd (laughs) want to put onto your combat diver, for instance. But I took that lead and and one thing led to another from that. So I went way back into the historic uh, scientific literature to, to sort of 
that's where my aha moment mm-hmm, came. Mm-hmm. And then you're what uniquely paving this path. I mean, this is something that's until not other, done. other people read that yeah. paper. So. Well, <laughs> it's interesting to me that it, it's sort of below the radar screen. Yeah. Oh, I mean, because okay. it isn't one of these sexy new pharmaceutical, yeah. you know, design kind of one-offs and with a new side chain, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but I, I think that more and more our compendium of approaches to infectious disease, et cetera, needs to be informed by historical perspective. So I think this has a role. Um, I, I wouldn't say that this is a one-shot re, you know, right. uh, answer for mm-hmm. everything, but it's remarkable in how effective it is for a number of uh, things we worry about. Now. Well, I love the idea that you know it might have been there might have been onto something with traditional kind of uh, approaches to this, and you were rediscovering it now. But it sounds like you know you uh, have it uh, at stingnomore.com, but uh, you're continuing your research. Uh, apart from that, is there anything else with jellyfish that you wanted to share or uh, that we should be keeping an eye out for? Well, I want to put in a plug for hot water immersion and vinegar spray. Um, do not use ice packs. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but um, it's published. <laughs> it's very well known that ice packs do not work. So if you didn't have this thing no more with you, um, get a hot water immersion as quickly as you can, um, and vinegar spray will also be of, of some assistance. So we want best practices out there Absolutely. for our, our local people and our tour and our visitors. Great, great. And, uh, and, and Mimi, I mean, any place you want to send people to keep track of what's, uh, what's going on with this commercialization effort? Um, we're not really doing anything on the big island at this point. We're just uh, putting it together, and that's really it. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh. <laughs> well, keep us posted. Yeah, sounds good. Well, Angel Yanagihara is a researcher, and uh, she's over at the Pacific Bioscience Research Center. And, of course, Mimi Pizzotto is the an instructor over at UH Hilo College of Pharmacy, and we want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about food sustainability and sustainability metrics. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Telekinesis and a song called In a Future World. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. There's nothing to say